Have you ever had those moments where you feel like everyone is watching you, like all eyes are on you? I remember when I was in high school, like there was just kind of a time frame where I did not love how my hair would just lay and I felt like it was always sticking up. And so when we'd go to classes, we weren't allowed to wear hats or anything like that. So I felt like everyone behind me would just was watching me and like my hair was not where it was supposed to be. And so like I just felt kind of insecure about that. And so whether it was true or not, that was just this feeling that I had that all eyes were on me. Or maybe you've had a situation where you got home and you realized your zipper's down. And you're like, oh, I wonder how long that's been. And you start thinking about everyone who maybe watched you or saw that and didn't tell you anything. And so again, just an uneasiness that you maybe feel with that aspect. Or maybe you're wearing a white shirt to lunch and you drop something on your shirt and you don't have a secondary shirt. And so it might even be a small spot, but you just feel like it gets larger and larger and everyone is watching you throughout the day. And so it's just this feeling that we can have that sometimes like people are watching us, maybe when they're not. But then there are times that eyes really are on you. Like maybe, for instance, you are somewhere in public and there is this unwanted bodily noise that happens. You're not expecting it and eyes turn towards you and you feel uncomfortable. Or maybe you're even sitting in a chair and you scoot it and it makes a noise and everyone looks at you and you're quick to go, nope, that's a chair, okay? Like you don't want people thinking that aspect. But again, just that uneasiness. Or maybe... In a spot, you're trying to be clever or you're trying to be funny. And so you say something and it doesn't go over well. You're like, oh, what do I do to kind of get out of this situation? Or maybe there's a spot where you are meeting someone or you're going into a meeting, going into a room and you come around the corner and you realize you're in the wrong place. Like everyone looks up at you and you don't know anyone. And you're like, where am I at? What am I supposed to be doing? And man, like you would do anything to be able to disappear in that moment. Like I think about those Snickers commercials, want to get away? Yes, I do. Like that's what I want to do in this moment. And so in our text today, like we're reading about a woman who a lot of people, we call her just this woman that's caught in adultery. And man, that is what she's got to be feeling. The idea that all these eyes are on me and I would love to do anything to get out of this situation that people aren't just staring at me. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 8. Um, you can read along in our app as well, but that's the text that we're going to be looking at today. And I'll tell you this, as you're turning there, there's a great chance that your Bible has a line right above this and right after verse 11 that says, in the earliest manuscripts, this section was not recorded. Okay, so what that means, in the earliest recordings of the book of John, that this section is not there. In fact, most people would tell you through the 6th century, it was not found here. All right. Some people will tell you um, that it belongs in a different spot. And so mine even tells me some people record this in a different spot in John or even in Luke. Here's what I would tell you, that there's one of John's disciples that later on speaks of this incident. Okay. And so he would have been familiar with it from John. I would also tell you that there's a lot of oral tradition that happens. So things that were passed down. And so at some point, I don't know who, I don't know where, but there were probably some scribes that said, this is accurate. This is historical. This helps people to know what to do. And so we're going to include it. I would encourage you that as we're reading through this text, not just to kind of push it off because, okay, was it in the original writings, but God is going to do some speaking through this as we're listening to what Jesus does in this spot. 
I would also tell you this one last thing. Why would they include it in this spot? Like one, I think that that's where they felt like, according to events, this is where it would be. And that makes a lot of sense for us in the fact of beforehand, you see just Jesus kind of getting frustrated with some of the attitude of the Judean people who aren't accepting the message of Jesus. And then even after this, you can see you to see that happening as well. And so I think that's all the reason of why it's placed in this spot, okay? But I want just to address that in case you're like, whoa, I didn't know this. Just being able to jump in to see what scripture tells us. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the entire passage and then kind of jump in a little bit deeper to see what God wants to teach us today. And so starting at verse 53, which is kind of crazy why they didn't just make that eight verse one, but that's what they chose to do. Here we go. 753. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. All right, so as we kind of break this text down right at the beginning, it talks about everyone uh, went home. And so again, if this is placed in the right spot, what that means is right before this, the Pharisees had sent out some of their guards to go arrest Jesus. Again, they do not like the things that he is kind of bringing people to them, like to him instead of them. And so they want him arrested, but the guards go and they listen to Jesus talk and they are amazed at the way that he teaches and the things that he says. And so they come back empty handed. They're like, there's nothing that we ought to arrest him for. And even in an argument that's going going on with the Pharisees, we read of a guy named Nicodemus that we had mentioned, you know, a few weeks ago. And in this spot, he says, Jesus, he deserves a fair trial. And so there's still some arguing that goes on, but then it's kind of the end of that story. And so more than likely, they can't come to a conclusion on what ought to happen. And so they all disperse. They go home, they go different ways. But we read then that Jesus, he goes to the Mount of Olives. In fact, we read how he does this multiple times. In one of the Gospels, it even says he goes to the Mount of Olives as usual. And so in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, there is a long teaching that Jesus has as he's speaking to his disciples, just them. And during that time, it's at the Mount of Olives. We read in Luke 21 about how Jesus would go to the temple to be able to teach. And when it's nighttime, he would go back to the Mount of Olives. We read that whenever he goes to Bethany to visit Lazarus and Mary and Martha or any other time that he's there, you know where that's located? on the Mount of Olives. Before his triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11, it tells us that Jesus was at the Mount of Olives. In fact, even when Jesus goes to pray before he is arrested and going into trial and crucified, it says that he has gone to the Mount of Olives. Now, some of you might go, wait, wait, I thought he prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. He did. You know where the Garden of Gethsemane is located? 
on the Mount of Olives, okay? And so again and again, you kind of see this being almost like kind of a home place that he can go and spend time with God and being redirected again of, God, let me connect with you before I go and do the ministry that you've called me to. And so here it says that he went to the Mount of Olives, but then it tells us that the next day at dawn, he goes to the temple courts and people come and gather and they are there to listen as he teaches. Now, again, if this is recorded in the correct spot, what has just happened is this thing called the Feast of Weeks. Okay, one of the celebrations that the Jewish people celebrated, it was a seven-day festival and it would have finished last night. And so this morning, a lot of people are packing up their little tents that they stay in while they're there, and they're about ready to head home. But for some people, that's quite a journey. And if there is someone teaching at the temple, like, man, I want to go listen just one more time before I begin my journey home. And so people are going to listen to see what this teacher, what Jesus has to say. All right? And so this crowd has gathered around. They're sitting down. They're listening to Jesus as he speaks. And amongst that, this mob shows up this group of teachers of the law, this group of Pharisees. And with them, they have a woman that has been caught in adultery. And I picture this murderous mob. And I don't know if you just have a picture that comes to your mind with a mob of people just being angry and loud and maybe even forceful. And so maybe they push her right to the center of all this kind of stuff. But that's what's happening here. I remember in high school learning of a sermon um, by someone named Jonathan Edwards that's called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And that sermon is all about like the judgment of God. And so you don't want to face that. And so that's where the sermon comes from. Well, in one of the books that I read that kind of had this encounter, they entitled this chapter Sinner in the Hand of an Angry Mob. And that's well said. Because here she is, but she is being brought in by this group of people that really aren't thinking straight. They are angry and they're using her in this situation. And so here she is standing before Jesus. In fact, the text tells us that they bring her and she stands before the group and Jesus. And so for just a moment, I want you to connect with her. Can you imagine how she's got to be feeling? Like her heart's got to be pounding quickly. Her palms are probably sweaty the amount of guilt and shame she's feeling. One, maybe for the act, but two, for getting caught. Like sometimes we don't feel too much shame in the act if no one like knows about it. But man, once we're caught, it's like, oh. And so imagine what she's feeling even with that aspect. And all of this is happening so fast. Like it was only a few hours ago or only a few minutes ago that she was in the tent and now she's in front of everyone. She's standing in the temple of God and she's exposed because of her sin. And I even say exposed, maybe physically. Like, did she have time to put clothes back on? Is she wrapped in a sheet? Does she have nothing? I don't know. But when we talk about this idea of all eyes are looking at her, that is what is going on in this moment. And I wonder what the crowd thinks. Like, are they curious just to see what Jesus is going to do? Are they maybe a little irritated that the teaching has been interrupted by this situation? Are they kind of scared? Like this mob comes in. Are they like, I am not going to say a thing because I don't want them turning on me. So I'm going to stay quiet in this. Are they angry because this woman's been caught in adultery? And so they immediately just think about the act that she did. And so that makes them angry and they're ready to see what he's going to say. Are they sympathetic? Like they're connecting with her as she's there in the middle all by herself. Does any of them even know her? Man, she's not just a person. Like, I understand who she is. And so maybe there's these different feelings of people sitting in the crowd, and this mob comes in with her, and they say to Jesus that she's been caught in adultery, and the law of Moses tells us that we are to stone such people. 
What that means is that is a capital punishment to the point that everyone is to grab rocks and throw them at her body until the point that her body gives up on life. And so sometimes you would even take someone out of the city and throw them off of a cliff and then begin to pelt them with rocks to be able to do what the law of Moses said. Now, having told you that, let's actually read what the law of Moses said. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, here's the ruling that God had said. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Okay, so that's what it says here. There's also a section in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 through 24 that say this. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. And so what this crowd of religious leaders is saying is, look, the law of Moses, we are supposed to stone her, and that's true. But then they look at Jesus and say, so what do you say? In fact, if you were to read in the Greek, the word that is stressed is you. So what do you say? And then recorded for us is, this was all asked because they were trying to trap him. Can I talk about a trap here? There's multiple ways that you know that this is a trap. For the first of all, like you're supposed to catch someone in the act. How do the Pharisees know what's going on? Like, are they watching her multiple nights and maybe she goes into different tents or maybe the same tent over and over again? I don't know. How do they catch her in the act? Are they waiting till a certain time and then they all rush in? Or do they just kind of stay outside the tent? I'll tell you the easiest way to know that she's caught in adultery is to set a trap and to make sure that she's going to be in this situation so that they can catch her. I would also tell you that I think this is a trap because standing before Jesus in this crowd is only the woman. Her lover is nowhere to be found. And when we just read what the law of Moses said, both the man and the woman were to be killed and he is nowhere to be found, which makes me again think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they set all of this up. Hey, do this for us so that we can bring her and we can trap Jesus. In fact, I can guarantee you they don't care about her. They really, in this instance, don't even care about her sin. They want to trap Jesus. Boy, reading this, it reminds me that sometimes sin, sin blinds us. Like here they are. <clears throat> they are so angry with Jesus that they're not thinking about everything else. And so they're simply bringing her because they want to see what he's going to do. And sometimes in our own lives, we only see what we want to see because of sin. And it's like, well, this is okay. Or we don't really evaluate our motives. And the reason for doing something is not pure. Or we're wanting to do something selfish. Or we want to get ahead. And so we choose to do something. And so that's what's happening with this group right here. They are looking for anything they can do to get rid of Jesus. And so they bring her into this situation. Can I tell you one more way that it's a trap other than just scripture telling us is because they bring her to Jesus instead of the court. Like if this were really happening, you would bring her to, to the court because the court had the um, authority to be able to pronounce the death sentence. Now they couldn't carry it out without the governor's approval, but here they're bringing her to Jesus and Jesus does not have that kind of authority. And so as we're talking about this trap, like just understand how much hypocrisy is going on in this moment. And they look at Jesus and they say, so what do you say? What do you say we should do? 
In this moment, if he condemns the woman, like he may risk the wrath of Rome for announcing, um, you know, capital punishment. He may also lose face with some of the crowd because of his compassion. But on the flip side, if he excuses the woman, like he can be rightly accused of contradicting the law of Moses, which demands that you stone this adulteress. In one of the chapters that I read, the author said this, but Jesus will not be trapped in a catch-22. It says, nor will he allow such flagrant hypocrisy to go undetected. When this mob thinks they have Jesus backed into a corner, Jesus is still in control. And so the text tells us that he bends down and he begins to write on the ground. What did he write? We have no idea. Like, there's all sorts of speculations out there. Like, sometimes people go, I think that he began to write all the names of the people who were part of this mob. Or sometimes people think, I think he began to write down their sins. It's a possibility. Some people say, I think he started writing the Ten Commandments in front of them. Some people say, I think he just began to doodle. Like, because this situation is so just stupid, like what they're doing, he wants them to understand how, like, ignorant this is. And so I'm just going to doodle on the ground. Some people would remind you that Roman law, what happens is, a judge would write out his verdict before he speaks it. And so maybe that's what Jesus is doing. He's writing out what he's going to say before he says it. I'll tell you, the author's not interested in giving us that detail. What is it that he wrote? Because that's not the main point. But Jesus is purposely doing something here. Man, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they're about to get more than they bargained for. Because even at this point, they continue to question him. That's what it says. And so then Jesus stands up and he looks at them and he says, any one of you who is without sin, you be the first to throw a stone. I'll tell you, without disregarding either the law of Moses or this precious person who is standing right in front of him, Jesus takes care of the matter. He says, if you're without sin, you be the first to throw the stone. I remember watching a Christian comedian. I have no idea who it was, but they were kind of talking about this story. And here we are. This woman is on trial and everyone's looking. And so if you're the first to throw the stone, do it. And it's all quiet for a moment. And then all of a sudden you hear this, and a rock has been thrown. Everyone starts looking around. Who was it? And it's Jesus. (laughs) The truth is his heart for her wouldn't allow her to do that. But the point is still there that no one else is sinless. Like no one else can say, yeah, I have the authority to do this on the fact that I haven't sinned. But I'd actually challenge you that I think Jesus is going deeper than that. Because even in the Old Testament, those who were then stoning someone because of their sin, they weren't sinless. I really think Jesus was hitting the heart of this issue. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, here's what God had said to Moses. He said, if a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party, you must purge the evil from among you. And I think Jesus is getting at the heart of this issue because witnesses were not supposed to have any kind of ulterior motive. They were not supposed to be involved in deceit. They weren't supposed to be malicious. There's no involvement in the crime that they were supposed to do. But man, I think the Pharisees, they're caught. Jesus knew that they were part of all this. And I even wonder, is this the verse that Jesus was writing down in the ground? And all of a sudden they're feeling convicted. 
But with one sentence, Jesus identifies and he criticizes and he dismantles this entire situation that's going on. And so as we look at this encounter with Jesus, like it starts with this woman being on trial. Although really she's just kind of bait. And so really it's Jesus being on trial in front of the mob. But by the time this encounter is done, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are going to be the ones who are accused. So Jesus bends back down and he writes again. And it says, at this, they began to go one at a time with the oldest being first until there's only Jesus and the woman. And I imagine the crowd is still watching, not the mob, but the original crowd. And can you imagine these teachers of the law and Pharisees having been told this and just looking at one another in the silence? And then all of a sudden you hear a thud and another thud. And maybe to the point where it begins to almost sound like popcorn because rocks are dropping again and again because no one has a leg to stand on to accuse this woman. And so then the woman, or Jesus says, where are they? Has no one accused you? You know, has no one condemned you? And she says, nope. And he says, neither do I. Now go and leave your life of sin. See, now that they've all left, there's no more witnesses. And the law of Moses said two witnesses. Jesus definitely isn't going to condemn her especially when she knows that she's just being used in this situation. But after he forgives her, he says, go and leave, live, leave this life of sin. In fact, he uses those same words in uh, John chapter 5, verse 14, when he heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. This idea of go and change. You see, Jesus forgives her, but he also wants her to be able to live her life in freedom, not bound by sin. And so even as I look at this event, this encounter with Jesus, I really want to look at that last sentence that Jesus says, because I think that really does help us understand what it means to be with Jesus. The first words in that sentence that he said were this, that I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And that's what he said to her. And those words are still things that he says to us today. And I'll tell you that I get sometimes we look at our life and we're like, yeah, but like, Andy, you don't understand just the things that I've done in my past. Like, I have no idea how God could forgive me, how he could choose to love me. I have done so much. Like, sometimes we even put levels to our sin. Like, do you realize in this story, he just called out self-righteousness and hypocrisy more than the adultery? Sometimes we just begin to feel shame. And we just think there is no way that God can love me. Man, if that's the way you think, you are limiting God and his grace. And without being mean, you're giving yourself too much credit. Like his grace is abundant. His grace is undeserved. That means you and I, we cannot earn it. But it is there ready to be received. And once we receive that grace of Jesus, the truth from from Romans chapter 8, verse 1, calls out that says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't condemn you. And yes, Scripture talks about a judgment that will happen, but God is a good, jo- good judge, and He's not going to condemn us based on our acts, because I can guarantee you, all of us are sinners. But it will be based on our choice. Did we choose to accept him? Did we allow his blood to cover our sin so that we are seen as righteous? If the answer is no, we will feel the consequences of that judgment. But if the answer is yes, 
then you and I, we will be said that we are not guilty, that we are free. And I would imagine that this morning, some of you need to be reminded of the words of Jesus, of I don't condemn you. And so that shame that really you feel because of your past, or the guilt that you feel because of your past, or even the failures because of your past, you know where they belong? In the past. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you. Come live in my love. But then there's also the second half of what he said. He said, leave your life of sin. Because you see, Jesus wants us to really be able to live in freedom. And the truth is that sin shackles us. It enslaves us. It takes life away from us. Like even in this story, even if she was being trapped, it was still her sin that put her in this place. And Jesus doesn't want to have to go through that. And I get it that sin sometimes has those momentary pleasures, that even has those momentary benefits. But then comes the consequences. And so even as Jesus says this, he is not some kind of killjoy, but he deeply cares about this woman. Oh, he deeply cares about you. And so what some of you need to hear this morning is that addiction or that bad habit or even that complete life of sin, it will not bring you fulfillment. It will not bring you freedom. It will not bring you joy. And so the choice you have to make is, am I going to put the sin nature aside that Jesus has already saved me from, and will I choose not to be involved in those things? And I'll tell you, that's more than a one-time choice, even every day. Okay, God, I want to do the things you want me to do. Help me not to live this kind of life, but I will tell you that holiness is worth it because that's what brings real life. And I want you to remember that even while you're doing this, Jesus is with you. He is with you as you walk this road. You don't have to do it on your own. And so some of you this morning, the challenge or the direction from Jesus is to leave your life of sin. And I would tell you that whole entire sentence that Jesus says is important and not just one or the other. And I say that because there are Christians that will latch on to one of those two sentences and not the other. What I mean by this is, oh, I'm going to latch on to the grace of Jesus. And now because I'm forgiven, I know there's no condemnation, but I'm going to live however I want because I'm forgiven. And so he's love, 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 love. Can I tell you that yes, he's love, but man, if I just go on living in sin and purposely doing whatever I want, I am mocking the holiness of God. And I'm saying that sin, it's not a big deal. And so yes, Jesus says there's no condemnation. And so I need to live in that love. But may I not take advantage of that? The other side, though, leave this life of sin. Sometimes we get caught up in legalism. And I'm only seen by whether I do sin or I don't do sin. And I'm trying to earn God's favor. Man, that's not a place that's healthy either. And so we need to listen to all of Jesus' messages that I want you to understand that I do not condemn you. And from this point, go live in freedom. Do not allow sin to continue to have its power over you. In fact, I read, with grace comes the expectation of godliness. Like, as I receive the grace that I know I don't deserve, may I give him praise. May I respond in a way that really is worthy. And here's the last thing. If we really want to connect to this woman who is standing in front of the crowd before she's given her freedom, like, you and I one day 
we will stand in front of the judge. And to be honest, we all deserve to be counted as guilty because we are. But because Jesus paid it all, because he took the legal penalty upon himself, we don't have to be seen that way. And if you've accepted him, then amongst this angry mob that maybe is accusing you, you can get up from the sin and you can brush it off and you can walk away free, allowing Jesus to transform you. You're free to be able to die to that sin that has entrapped you and free to live with the one who has rescued you. The words of freedom this morning, I did not condemn you. Now go and leave this life of sin. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this grace that we do not deserve. God, I'm thankful for life that's eternal, but life right now and the daily living with you. God, help us just to walk in your strength, to walk in your holiness. God, not with any kind of legalism, but a desire just to give you praise and thanks. Fathers, we meet every week. I know there are hearts that are close to choosing you, that want to give their lives to you. And I just pray for boldness for those individuals. Help them to be able to experience the peace and the joy that only you can offer. So God, this week, I pray that things that we learned this morning aren't just left at church. But God, may we walk with you every single moment of every day and give you praise. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.